Once again, good morning. Good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1? And if you're new with us, we welcome you and just want to let you know that we have started a study through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And as we've already seen after his introduction, which covers verses 1 to 18, John starts the narrative of his gospel with the coming of John the Baptist onto the scene. Now, I have organized the chapter around three main points, starting with verse 19, because it gets into the narrative. But uh, we've organized the first chapter around three main points. The inquisition of the Jews, the introduction of John, and the invitation of Jesus. Now, we've already looked at the first main point, the uh, inquisition of the Jews. And now we'd like to move into the second, which we actually started last week, the introduction of John. And it starts with John presents Jesus as the Lamb of God. Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, it's interesting that John didn't uh, present Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. That would have been totally appropriate, right? Rather, he focuses on his mission. Messiah was his title, but Lamb of God spoke of his mission. He came to die that we might live. And notice that John says of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away not the sins of the world, plural, but the sin of the world. Jesus doesn't just take away the symptoms, folks. <laughs> he takes away the disease itself. It's interesting that they thought they needed a king. God knew they needed a lamb. They were looking for physical deliverance from the bondage of Rome. God was giving them spiritual deliverance from the bondage of sin. You know, the natural man, unbelievers, are always concerned and consumed with the physical realm. It's all they know, really. But God knows that man's spiritual needs far outweigh the physical because the physical is only temporary. But the spiritual, and on top of the list is man's need for forgiveness of sin, that is eternal, the effects of that. Now, we have seen John presents Jesus as the Lamb of God. The next point is John testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 30, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Now look, as when John says, I didn't know him, it doesn't mean that John didn't know who Jesus was. They were second cousins. Of course he knew who he was. No doubt they had spent uh, time together growing up at family gatherings and such. John knew Jesus as his cousin. He didn't know uh, that Jesus was the Messiah until John baptized him in the Jordan River. In fact, John says himself that I didn't know who the Messiah was. I'm going to say in a moment I think he had some ideas. <laughs> but I didn't really know who the Messiah was. But the one who sent me to baptize, God the Father, said, look, you're going to know the Messiah because after you baptize the Messiah, as soon as he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit is going to, in the form of a dove, is going to descend and stay upon him. That's how you're going to know the Messiah. So John is testifying, look, 
I knew that Jesus was the Messiah when he came up out of the water and the Spirit came upon him. All right, but how did he know that Jesus was the Son of God? Well, God could have told him that when he sent him to baptize. He could have said, John, you're going to know the Messiah when the Spirit of God comes upon him. But also, I want to let you know, he's not going to be a mere man. He's going to be my son, the Son of God. It could have been, right? But maybe, maybe, John's mother told him that Jesus was the Son of God. He said, what do you mean? Well, you remember in Luke chapter 1, how the angel Gabriel at one point was dispatched to Nazareth, this little crummy town where uh, Mary happened to live. Mary, uh, who was just a teenager. And the angel Gabriel said to her, Mary, you have found favor in the eyes of God. He has chosen you to be the mother of the Messiah. She says, how can this be? I've never known a man. I'm a virgin. Gabriel said, well, the Holy Spirit, is, the power of God is going to overshadow you. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And that Holy One which we conceived in your womb will be the Son of God. We read after that, Mary goes off to Judea to visit her cousin Elizabeth uh, and stays there for a time with her. And of course, Elizabeth was the mother of John the Baptist, who at this time she was six months pregnant with John. And it's hard for me to imagine that Mary didn't share with Elizabeth what the angel Gabriel told her about the baby in her womb, that he would be Messiah and the Son of God. Now, when John was born, remember that earlier in Luke's Gospel, uh, an angel of the Lord, might have been Gabriel, we're not told, appeared to Zacharias, godly priest who was ministering in the temple at that time. And of course, he was elderly, and his wife Elizabeth was elderly, and they had, she was barren. But the angel said, look, God has granted that your wife is going to be pregnant. She's going to bear a son. And the wording of the prophecy was that he was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. So I have to believe that growing up, Elizabeth and, uh, and uh, Zacharias told John on more than one occasion what the angel had said to them about God's plans for John's life, that he would be the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, I have a hard time believing they didn't share with John, especially as he's gotten older now, what Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, had told them that this child would be Messiah and the Son of God. It could very well be that Elizabeth and uh, Zacharias shared with this with John, that this was going to be no mere man that you're going to be the forerunner of. He is going to be the Son of God. So that could be how John came to believe Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. Back in John 1, verse 32, it says, John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remaining up, remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now, in verses 30 to 34, John the Apostle is recounting the testimony of John the Baptist concerning Christ after the fact. John's already baptized Jesus. Now he's going around testifying what had happened that day. All right, uh, And so he's talking about this after the fact, right? In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew records the event of Jesus' baptism on the very day it took place. If you turn to Matthew 3. So Matthew 3, starting with verse 16. 
When he, Jesus, had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting or coming upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And again, guys, it could be this was the first time John actually heard. Okay, and now he's going around telling everybody this is the Son of God, but this might have been the first time he was ever told, all right? Uh, it might have been, all right? Uh, that after Jesus, he knew that the Spirit was going to come upon the Messiah, but then God from heaven, the Father, said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Could be at that point that John first came to realize that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. Uh, I, I kind of believe it was earlier than that. I think I kind of think he had his mom uh, and uh, his, his, his aunt. She's actually his cousin. Uh, but I believe his mom and Mary um, had shared with him. Okay. And, um, and John knew that information, but wasn't yet convinced. Uh, God had not really um, uh, made it clear until the baptism of Jesus. And now he knows that, in fact, his mom, his dad, you know, Mary had told him uh, the truth, that this was, in fact, the Son of God. Now, John says something that is extremely important, something we absolutely need to understand. Again, verse 33, John says, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who listens, listen, baptizes with the Holy Spirit, baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Remember last week we pointed out, the New Testament talks about different kinds of baptisms. The word baptize simply means to immerse. The question is, into what? Well, to answer that, you have to look at the context. Uh, let me give you one example that we kind of looked at last week. Turn to Matthew 3, if you've, you're not there still. But uh, Matthew 3, verse 11. John the Baptist is saying, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals, sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So here in Matthew 3, verse 11, three different bapti uh, baptisms are mentioned. Uh, the water baptism, which is the one John said he came to, to do, water baptism, and then the baptism with the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire, both of those John attributes to Jesus and his ministry. Well, John went on to explain in Matthew 3, verse 12, that the baptism of fire would be a baptism of judgment, where all unbelievers would eventually be immersed, baptized, immersed, would be immersed into the lake of fire, hell, for all eternity. As far as water baptism is concerned, we studied that last week. That leaves us with the third baptism John mentioned, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Well, to put it simply, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is the baptism of power that equips us for service. It's extremely important to note that as the Lord Jesus Christ prepared to begin his public ministry, listen, he makes it a point to walk 60 miles, walk 60 miles from Galilee all the way down to the Lower Jordan River to be baptized by John, um, so indicating 
This was something that he believed to be very important to launching his public ministry. Not just being baptized by John in water. That was important for other reasons. But it was really the baptism that would take place after John baptized Jesus in water. In Luke chapter 3, if you turn there. I mean, Jesus made it a point to walk 60 miles to be baptized by John in the Jordan because he believed this was something that was absolutely essential that for him to do before he began his public ministry. But again, it wasn't just the water baptism of John. It was what happened afterward that was really the issue. In Luke 3, verse 21, we read, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove, listen, upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. I want you to notice the wording of verse 22, Luke 3, 22, and Matthew 3, 16. It says, The Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, upon Jesus. Now, let me just say this, and we won't get into this in detail today. We're going to save that study for John 14. But let me just say right up front here that Jesus spoke. We're talking about now this baptism with the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke of three levels of relationship that the Holy Spirit can have with a person. These are ascending levels. In other words, they build on each other. All right. Jesus outlined these three levels using three Greek prepositions, each one corresponding to one of these three levels of relationship a person can have with the Holy Spirit. Turn to John 14. Now in John 14, it's the night before the cross, they're in the upper room celebrating the Passover. Jesus lays a bombshell on these disciples by telling them, I'm going away. And you can't come with me. I mean, they were used to living with him for three years. I'm going away. You can't follow me. You can't. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back for you. But right now you can't go where I'm going. So they were very troubled. And he said, look, I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send another helper who will be with you forever. The spirit of truth, verse 17, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you. That's the first preposition. It's the Greek word para, and will be in you. Second Greek preposition, en, en, all right? Then we fast forward three days to Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. In John 20, if you turn there. Now they're hiding in the upper room, door locked. They're afraid the Romans are going to come and arrest them next and crucify all of them. So they're hiding out. It's Sunday evening. Then Jesus, then the same, verse 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut and the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jewish leadership, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with, peace be with you. He goes on to say, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. A lot of commentators um, 
I don't think get this right as to what just happened. Again, the night before the cross in the upper room, Jesus told them the Spirit was with them. Well, look, let me just say this. I believe these guys were saved before, you know, Pentecost. Okay, I believe they were saved in the upper room. They were saved following Jesus around for ministry. But they were saved in the Old Testament sense, all right? Just like Abraham, David, uh, you know, Isaiah. They were saved in the Old Testament sense. Why do I say that? Because to be a New Testament Christian, you have to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul said that, okay? You have to believe in the bodily resurrection, that he's God, number one. Number two, that he rose from the dead bodily. All right, you have to believe that to be a Christian. It's essential doctrine. So what I believe Jesus was saying to them, firstly, he said, look, I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to where you can't follow me, all right? But I'm not going to leave you alone. The Holy Spirit is with you. Now, they were saved, but today, the Holy Spirit is with people, all, all the people of this world, I believe. What's he doing? Drawing them to Jesus. He is with them. Draw, this is ministry, to draw men and women to Christ, right? The moment a person opens their heart to Jesus, receives him as Lord and Savior, the Spirit comes what? In them. He was with them. Now he is in them. They're saved. They're Christians, all right? Let me just say this, because some people think we Calvary pastors, we are saying that a person can be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Not true. Paul said in Romans 8 9, If any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. He's not a Christian. We are not saying a person can be saved without the Holy Spirit in them. That's what makes you born again, when the Spirit moves inside. All right, Every Christian has the Holy Spirit in them. Listen to me. Not every Christian has the Holy Spirit upon them. Upon them. This is something we need to understand. All right, And uh, this is what the Bible calls the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which is a separate and often a subsequent work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life apart from salvation. A person can be saved and not have the Spirit of God upon them for years, as we're going to see in a moment. But this baptism, guys, is absolutely essential for service because it supplies the power necessary, the power we need that is necessary for doing the work God has called each of us to do. Remember, guys, these were simple fishermen, Galileans, blue-collar guys, uneducated, didn't go to any universities, didn't have a degree, right? They're just ordinary guys when Jesus called them. Now, before he ascends back to the Father, he commissions them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. How are they going to do that? Who's going to Rome, Athens, Alexandria? I mean, centers of learning and culture. How are these Galilean, simpleton, fishermen, nobodies? Who's going to listen to them? I mean, how are they going to go into all the world and minister for Jesus Christ? How are they going to do it? Very simply, they weren't going to do it, really. God was going to endue them with supernatural power from on high, and God was going to do the work through them. This is where that third Greek preposition comes in. Turn to Luke 24. Now, this is at the very end of Jesus' ministry before he ascends back to his father. Luke 24. He had already commissioned them to go into all the world, preach the gospel. But again, he knew they were not equipped to do that. 
First of all, they had the information. They knew the gospel. They've been following Jesus for three years. They knew the gospel cold. They could probably recite it in their sleep. But Jesus said, even though you know the gospel, you're not ready to share the gospel. You need to go back to Jerusalem. Verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father, what? Upon you. This is that third Greek preposition, the word api. He was with you, para. Uh, he is going to be in you. And, and when he comes upon you, api, you're going to receive power. But he goes on to say, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem, and two you are endued with power from on high. Acts 1. Zip over to Acts 1. Which picks up where Luke leaves off. Verse 4, and being assembled together with them, Jesus came, was with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8, but you shall receive power. The Greek word is the word we get our word dynamic or dynamite from. Uh, dunamis is the Greek word. Uh, you're going to receive dynamic power when the Holy Spirit has come, what? Upon you, epi. And you shall be witnesses to me. That's the work he was calling them to do. In Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and under the ends of the earth. So that was now, um, he was with them for 40 days after his resurrection. Now he sends back to heaven, Jesus does, they obey what he said to go back to Jerusalem. They're waiting there 10 days now until Pentecost comes. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them. Boy, is the Holy Spirit consistent, isn't he? When he's talking about this baptism of power, he always refers to it as the Spirit came upon him, her, them. All right? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Well, this created quite a stir. You see, there were pilgrims in town from all over the known world to celebrate Pentecost, one of the three major Jewish feasts of the year. They heard the sound of this mighty rushing wind. Think of a hurricane coming through town. Of course, you know, nothing was being blown around. That was so, so weird about it. Lawn chairs were not flying. Grills were stationary, you know. But they heard the sound, and they could figure out where it was coming from. They rushed over. This happened to be where the disciples were. And uh, they, th they heard these guys talking in tongues, and they were speaking. All these Galileans, Jesus' disciples, were talking the languages of the you know, the people that came from all over the known world, their own dialects. Now, for some reason, they thought they were drunk, you know, and Peter stood up, spirit-filled Peter now, gives the first sermon, spirit-filled sermon of the church age, right? First thing he says is, these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh, right? Your, your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. I'm going to pour out my spirit for the final push before the kingdom comes. It's been 2,000 years now. 
Thank God he's, got, he's very patient. It would, it would happen quickly. None of us would be around. Uh, but God waited. Here we are. And so Peter's preaching this message, right? And they're listening. They just can't. They were enraptured at just what he was saying, right? After he finishes, he, he wraps it up, I should say. Verse 38. Then Peter said to them, because they said, well, men and brethren, what should we do? Peter said, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what I, I believe Peter is talking about, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or baptism with the Spirit, this baptism of power, for the promises to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, we'll have a lot more to say about that in the weeks to come. What was the result? Okay, did they respond to Peter's invitation? You bet. We read 3,000 men were converted that day. They didn't count women and young people, so it might have been 15 or 20,000 people were converted. First message of the church age. Wow, Fellowship Hall must have been jam-packed, uh, you know, that day, right? But I want you to understand, very important for us to understand that Jesus, listen, Jesus, the Son of God, in his humanity, waited 30 years until he was baptized with the Holy Spirit, and only then did he begin his public ministry, as recorded in Luke 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. You know, guys, how absurd is it for us to think that we can do anything for God in the way of ministry without the same power Jesus knew he needed to do the work the Father had given him to do? Now, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I might be overstating it. I don't think so. I believe this is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, needs in the church today. And the single greatest reason the church is so ineffective in the world in its work for God. And please don't point me to megachurches. I'm not impressed by most of them. There are some good large churches. The large church doesn't mean it's bad. Small church doesn't mean it's good. I'm just saying we, we know from the scriptures in the last days there would be many who would come tickling ears to grow big churches. When people say, well, how can it be a dead church? It's growing. Even graveyards grow, folks. Don't let that fool you. Okay? In fact, if you read Revelation 2 and 3, the 11, seven letters of seven churches, the smallest church, Smyrna and Philadelphia, were the most on fire, most alive, most spirit-filled. The larger churches, like Laodicea, Jesus was knocking, let me in. He was not even in their church. So I'm not impressed with big churches. All right? We'll all stand before God someday and hear him say whether we're a faithful servant or not. So I just keep my eyes on Jesus. But I just want you to know that I believe one of the reasons that the church is so ineffective today in reaching people for God, I'm talking about really reaching them, where they desire to be holy and go out and be a light in this dark world, is because we're trying to do the work of God for the most part in the energy of the flesh and not in the power of the Spirit. I mean, Jesus clearly promised his church that against his church, the gates of hell would not prevail. Why is the devil prevailing? I just had somebody tell me, it's, getting a little, it's a little disheartening when you read the news. You know what God has promised? 
but you see so much wickedness and evil, it's almost like, you know, the, the devil is prevailing against the church. That may seem that way, but it isn't that way, okay? It's not that way. We need, to, we need, though, to do God's work, not in our own strength, ingenuity, intelligence, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. There is a mentality today, whether, whether it's probably not stated openly, but I believe it's embraced by a lot of folks, that as long as you have a degree, a biblical degree, or a degree in pastoral studies from a Bible college or seminary, you're equipped and called to go out and do the work of God. The guys that had the degrees in Jesus' day, he constantly challenged them. Um, challenged their carnality, their hypocrisy. They weren't teaching the truth and so on. Look, a degree from some university doesn't make you any more called and equipped to serve God than anything else. It's the Holy Spirit that calls and equips. And if God has called you, he will equip you. And if he's equipped you and he's called you, you will have a ministry that will be fruitful. I mean, you may not see thousands, so what? But you'll see fruit, and that's all that matters. I want you to understand, though, that the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry on the earth, this is important. We're not done in his power as the second person of the Trinity. God could have been, but then he would have really blown his mission. Because it was all about laying aside his power and his glory, Philippians 2, to avail himself of the same power that would be available to all of his people who would come after him, who would continue the work he had begun on the earth, right? He could have done the miracles and things he did in his own power, but again, that would have blown his mission. But rather, all of the miracles, all the things he did, were done not in the power of the second person of the Trinity, but in the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Peter acknowledged this in Acts 10. You don't have to turn there. But he's talking to the family of Cornelius, and he said, how, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Peter is saying, look, Jesus' power came from the Holy Spirit, who then went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Guys, this is how Jesus did the work of God. And this is how we are to do the work of God in the same power of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about John the baptizer. He baptized with water. He said, another one's coming after me who is much greater than me. Yeah, because he's the Messiah and the Son of God. But he's also greater than me because He's going to also baptize you, not in water, but in the Holy Spirit, which will equip you to do, the, to do the work God is going to call each of you to do. Look, I've shared this before, and I see some new faces, so if you've heard this, bear with me. Of course, we live in the outskirts of Chicago. Chicago happens to have been the headquarters of D.L. Moody. We even have Moody Church, Moody Bible Institute in the city there. And uh, Moody founded all those. And this was his hometown, Chicago, and this is where he conducted his ministry. From what I understand, reading Moody's biography, he was in ministry for 15 years before the event happened that we're going to talk about right now. So he was already working, serving the Lord, for 15 years. Let me pick it up in his own words. Okay, this is a testimony of Moody about an event that happened that 
he, said, he relates in his own words. I'll read it to you. He said, and I quote, I can myself go back almost 12 years. Now, this is 12 years after the event. He's looking back now. I can, go, I can myself go back almost 12 years and remember two holy women who used to come to my meetings. Uh, it was delightful to see them there, for when I began to preach, I could tell by the expression of the, on their faces they were praying for me. At the close of the Sabbath evening services, Sunday evening services, they would say to me, we've been praying for you. I said, why do you pray for the people? They answered, because you need power. I need power, I said to myself. But I thought I had power. I had a large Sabbath school and the largest congregation in Chicago. I mean, there were some conversions at that time, and I was, in a sense, satisfied. But right along, these two godly women kept coming, kept praying, kept challenging him that you need power. Um, and in their earnest, uh, they, they shared with me that I needed a special anointing for service. This is what we would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this got me thinking. I mean, Moody was a humble enough guy. I mean, he was pretty well known by this time and did have the largest church in Chicago. But to his credit, uh, when these two gals were coming to his meetings and praying for him and kept talking about the special anointing for power of power to do the work of God, he was a humble enough man to listen to them. And um, it got me thinking, he said, what they were saying. I asked him to come and talk with me. And we got down on our knees they, uh, to pray, and they poured out their hearts that I might receive the anointing of the Holy Ghost. And there came a great hunger in my soul. I knew not what it was. God really began to burden him. I began to cry as never before. The hunger increased. I really felt that I did not want to live any longer if I could not have this power for service. I kept on crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Now, the author who includes Moody's testimony says, and I quote him now, Then came the great Chicago fire. On the evening of that memorable night in 1871, when one-third of the city was laid in ashes and thousands were left homeless, Moody had preached earlier that evening in Farwell Hall, but with the institutions now that he had founded in ruins, burned to the ground, Moody went east to appeal for funds to rebuild. He said, though, this is Moody now in his own words, my heart, though, was not in the work of begging. I could not appeal. I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom even refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and that I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Now, from what I understand, he's walking down. He's supposed to be out there in New York trying to gather funds to rebuild. But he, he's just so burdened. He's walking around just thinking about this baptism with the Spirit, right? And then all of a sudden, one day in New York, I heard it was on Wall Street of all places, <laughs> the Spirit of God falls on him. And he, the Spirit overwhelmed. This is a common testimony, by the way, of people that received the baptism with the Spirit. The Spirit overwhelms him with so much love and joy. Apparently, he knew somebody in the area that owned a two-flat, and there was an upper room that was vacant. And so he asked if he couldn't spend the afternoon up there. He just was praying and just being bathed in this, this incredible love and joy to the point where he finally says, Lord, you got to back off. You're going to kill me. <laughs> you know, back off with the joy and the love, okay? So he goes home and says, I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I didn't present any new truths. Yet hundreds were converted. 
I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. It would be as the small dust of the balance, end quote. The author then adds this, the sermons were not different, but the, serm- the uh, servant was. The truths were not new, but now they were pungent and penetrating. A few had been converted before, now converts came by the hundreds. And again, guys, let me just say this. If Jesus needed the power of the Holy Spirit to be effective in his ministry, and Peter, and Paul, and more modern-day saints like D.L. Moody, if they all believed that they needed this power to do the work of God properly and effectively, you know, who are we to think we can get out there and do God's work in our own strength? Oh, but I have my degree. You know what you can do with your degree? Throw it in the garbage. You're, you're resting too much on that degree. That degree means nothing in the eyes of God. He wants you to depend on Him, all right? I mean, we can't do any ministry without the power of God, or in other words, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. You might be thinking to yourself, okay, you've convinced me. How do I receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Well, how do you receive anything from God, right? Everything God gives us is by His grace. In other words, it's a gift we don't deserve. So how do you get something from God? You ask him in faith. You ask him, turn to Luke 11. You simply ask in faith. In Luke 11, starting with verse 9, Jesus is talking about prayer. And he has something in particular in mind that he wants us, his people, to pray for. So he says, he's teaching them about prayer. And he says in verse 9, So I say to you, ask, and it, it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock, and the door will be open to you. Now, in the Greek, it comes through this way. Ask, please ask, and keep on asking. Seek, please seek, and keep on seeking. Knock, please knock, and keep on knocking, and your answer will come. In other words, prayers not, many prayers are not answered immediately. We have to keep on seeking and praying and asking. Verse 10 is important. For everyone... Who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. That's a promise that prayer is going to be answered one way or another. Then he says in verse 11, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Your son asks for some bread. I'm hungry, Dad. Here, chew on this rock, kid. No, I don't think so. (laughs) Or if he asks for a fish, what father will give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, what father will give him a scorpion? Verse 13, If you then being evil... I mean, basically, you're fallen, okay? That's what he's saying. That, that he's saying they're openly evil. Just that if a fallen man can still be a good father, okay? Give their kids good things. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And here I believe he's talking to Christians now. Because he talks about them having God as their father, which the relationship is there. But he's saying, look, how much now if you're a Christian, you already have the Holy Spirit in you. So he's not talking about getting the Holy Spirit and being saved or already saved. I believe what Jesus is saying is, look, you're going to need power to go out and serve me. Now, you need to ask the Father, knock, seek, keep on doing it, because sometimes you won't get it immediately. But the Father intends to give you this good gift. Because he knows you need it to do the work he's calling you 
to do, the baptism with the Spirit. Now listen, sometimes people pray for this gift and it doesn't come. Why? God wants me to have it. Why hasn't he given it to me? Well, sometimes there has to be a necessary brokenness first. You know, there are people that, some people that want this power because they want to have a big ministry and look at my power, look at the power of our ministry and, and really make a name for themselves. Jesus says, no, you're not ready for this power. No, you want to use it for your own glory. No, okay? So sometimes there has to be a brokenness that precedes the gift of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. I, I'd just like to share with you a little from um, The Life of Another Man. Both of these stories come out of a book named They Found the Secret. Awesome book. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. I think it's out of print, but Amazon has it. Uh, they Found the Secret, uh, written by V. Raymond Edmond. Uh, remember Edmond Chapel in, uh, in um, uh, what's the name of the university here? Uh, in Elgin? Uh, oh, you know what it is. Okay. Uh, Judson. Uh, that chapel was named after him. He used to be their president one time. But he compiled this uh, book, 20 short stories about people that were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Some of them you know, like Moody, and there's Finney, and some others. And others, some, some you don't know, but... All of their lives were dramatically, and ministries were dramatically transformed when the, they received the baptism with the Holy Spirit. One of those gentlemen was Dr. Walter Wilson. And uh, uh, the author of They Found the Secret uh, tells us that Dr. Wilson was converted to Christ on, on a December night in 1896. Afterward, the author goes on to say he became a lover of the scriptures and became diligent in teaching, preaching, and distributing tracts. Much effort, however, seemed to produce little result. The guy was working like crazy for the Lord, wasn't seeing much fruit. And no apparent success followed his labors. This ineffectiveness troubled him. And he was told by others, but he was told by others, not to look for results, but only just be busy about sowing the seeds. Just preach the gospel. Don't worry about results. But not, not bad advice, okay? But um, Dr. Wilson went on. Uh, and just took that to heart and just kept being faithful, but no fruit really. And this went on for 17 years, the author says. And then January 14, 1914 came when, uh, when Dr. Wilson heard a, uh, a message given by Dr. James Gray, who later went on to become the president of Moody Bible Institute. Uh, Dr. Gray that night uh, preached on the need to surrender our lives fully to the Holy Spirit to accomplish his work through us. Upon hearing this message, Dr. Wilson went home and laid there on the floor of his room, utterly heartbroken over his fruitless life, and he cried out to the Holy Spirit. Now, he's praying out to the Holy Spirit. He says this, and I quote. He said, My Lord, I have mistreated you all my Christian life. I have treated you like a servant. When I wanted you, I called for you. When I was about to engage in some work, I beckoned you to come and help, help me perform my task. I have kept you in a place of a servant. I, I have sought to use you only as a willing servant to help me in my self-appointed and chosen work. I shall do so no more. Just now I give you this body of mine. From my head to my feet, I give it to you. I give you my hands, my limbs, my eyes and lips, my brain, all that I am within and without, I hand over to you for you to live in, for you to live in it, this body, the life that you please. You may send this body to Africa or lay it on a bed with cancer. You may blind the eyes or send me with your body to, uh, to Tibet 
You may take this body to the Eskimos or send it to, the host to a hostel with pneumonia. It is your body from, <clears throat> from this moment on. Help yourself to it. Thank you, my Lord. I believe you have accepted my prayer. Now, let me just stop and say this. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, that is a bizarre and a um, radical, fanatical prayer. Can I just say this in all kindness? You've never experienced the kind of brokenness that Dr. Wilson experienced. So many Christians are products of our modern-day Christian culture, which is more concerned about tickling your ears than challenging you to take up your cross. So many churches are, are gathered around the idea that we want to make people happy when Jesus wanted his church to be holy, right? We, we have victims today, don't even realize that they're victims of a church culture that Jesus and Paul predicted would be in the last days where you would have all kinds of people tickling ears to build big churches but would not be teaching the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth of God. As Paul said, I, I have not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God, right? So when a person hears, a modern-day Christian for the most part, hears this kind of prayer, it sounds bizarre and fanatical. But that's because they've never experienced a kind of brokenness that leads to God really using a person the way he wants to. As long as we think God owes us, as long as we think God exists to make me happy, we're never going to know the power. We're never going to be used by God the way he wants to use us. There has to be a brokenness and a surrender. And the author goes on to say, from that day on, Dr. Wilson's life was dramatically and forever changed. The author says, might I say he was turned into another man. He went on to become a tremendous soul winner. All because he came to a place of brokenness and surrender, coupled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. R.A. Torrey, who was Moody's right-hand guy for years, said on this subject, and I quote, The lack of this absolute surrender is shutting many out of the blessing today. People turn the keys of almost every closet in their heart over to God, but there is some small closet of which they wish to keep the key for themselves, and the blessing does not come, end quote. In other words, look, so many Christians are willing to turn most of their life over to God, but there's a few areas that they don't want God to go near. You know, maybe it's, uh, you know, just resentment, anger, people that are not willing to forgive, habits that they're not willing to let go of. So, Lord, you're going to, you know, 90% of my life, and I'm going to keep 10% for myself. Don't you know if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not really Lord at all. And God tells us, look, I want all of you. I don't take partial servants. You don't give me 50% or 80% of your life. You give me all of it, brokenness and surrender, before I can really use you 100% for my glory. Very important point. The question I want to leave you with this morning is, what is holding you back? Is, is anything holding you back from surrendering your life fully to God so he can use you for his glory? I mean, only you can answer that, right? We all have little areas, little closets maybe, got the key tucked away somewhere. God, don't go near that thing. We all, in our own homes, how many of us have junk closets, right? Your house could be sparkling clean. There's always a junk closet, isn't there? Or a junk drawer. You open it, things pop out and, you know, fall on you. And, uh, you, know, you know, for whatever reason, you don't, that's sacred ground. Don't, don't touch my junk closet. You know, in our hearts, we have little areas like that too. It's full of junk. Bitterness, unforgiveness, hatred, prejudice. 
whatever. And God is saying, I want that. I want that. Well, but Lord, you got everything else. Why can't I have one clot? I want that. Because that one area that you're not willing to surrender to me, that will keep me from using you completely. What are you holding back from God? Is it a relationship? Is it a dream, a goal, an object? The rich young ruler wouldn't let go of his money. Jesus, it's hindering you from following God completely. Give it away. Come follow me. He went away sorrowful, had a lot of wealth, wasn't willing to give it up. Look, the Lord Jesus Christ is inviting all of us to follow him completely. Pretty much everyone in this room, I think, has already started following him to some degree. The issue is, for Christians, have we surrendered all and are we following him completely? This is something we have to come to terms with. Because until we do that and surrender everything to him, well, I don't believe the power to serve him will be ours nor will the, the level of ministry be ours that he wants to use us uh, to accomplish for his glory. So we will leave it there today, and uh, God willing, next week, uh, pick up this. I think I'm going to be on vacation next week, but uh, who knows? I might be here. We'll see. And uh, we'll continue on in John chapter 1. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. Your word teaches us so many things, Lord, that we need to know. Uh, before we can really serve you. And of course, Lord, one of the biggest things is we can do nothing apart from you. We are completely helpless, impotent, to do anything for an omnipotent God unless that God puts his spirit and power upon us. And Lord, we ask that you would work in each of our hearts. It's not that you're unwilling to baptize us with your spirit. It's are we willing to let go of everything and surrender all to you. So Lord, give us all grace to Think about this, meditate, pray about it. If we're hiding, if we're holding something back that is hindering the work you want to do through us, show us and give us grace to let go of it. Like Dr. Wilson, Lord, this body belongs to you. You can take it wherever you want to take it. If you want to send me off as a missionary to China or Africa, uh, Lord, whatever you want to do with me, I surrender to you. So God, give us grace to be able to say that with all sincerity. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.